serving here as the director of art and prayer. Um, so creativity and prayer is what I do. Um, excited to be here this morning. Before we get started, I have a question for you. Um, I want you to look at the person next to you. That's your neighbor. Go ahead and look in their face, look in their eyes. And if there's no one, look across the aisle to the other person who has no one. Great. That's your neighbor. I want you to ask that person, is God beautiful? to you. Like, talk about it for a second. Get their answer. Don't just do it as a pleasantry. Ask them, is God beautiful to you? That may seem like an odd question, depending on how you understand beauty. But I think all of us deep down on some level know that when something is beautiful, it captivates us. It draws us. We marvel at it. Are those things associated with God in your heart, in your mind, in your actions? Is God beautiful to you? I hope so. Um, Well, we are in the liturgical season called Epiphany. I've talked about it before, but I did not grow up in like a liturgical church um, at all. Okay, so when the first time I heard about calendars and stuff, I was like, y'all are weird. Um, But I think it's really cool, a way for you to, you know, orient your year, your life, the seasons of life about what God has done and what he's doing. Um, Shameless plug, we have a book that came out. um, What season was that? Ordinary Time? or an ordinary time, um, called Common Seasons, where photographers, creatives in this church went out and captured something beautiful regarding each season in the liturgical calendar. And then we actually put in the lectionary readings for that season. So if you want something to um, orient your life in time uh, with the word, with what God has already done, those are available in the bookstore. Okay, great. Um, So Epiphany, Epiphany Tide is where we are. It's the season that starts with the Magi uh, visiting Jesus. is about when Jesus is revealed to the world, and it goes up until Lent, at least in our tradition, it goes up until Lent. And the final Sunday in Epiphany is Transfiguration Sunday. Um, That's actually next Sunday, the 19th. So we are going to do a mini-series the next couple weeks called Brilliant, and it's centered on the story of the Transfiguration and the themes of beauty and glory. All right. So today we're going to look at beauty, primarily how it's produced when God reveals himself and is used when God, how God uses it to draw us to himself. Uh, we also will look at how the revelation of Jesus is the ultimate beauty. And lastly, how the present or practice, how to practice recognizing beauty and how in that practice it redirects us to God and forms us into people of worship. All right. So before we dive in, I'm going to pray. Here we go. Father, we know you are the only one that is good, the only one that is holy, the only one that is righteous, the only one that is just. Spirit, we need you to come into this room and change us. We don't gather around your word to learn more. We gather and come to worship. God, would you make us into a people of worship? Spirit, draw hearts and minds in here. Would distractions fall away? Would 
the goodness of who you are be seen today. Hide me, Lord, behind the cross. Would your word and what you're doing be the thing we leave here from this place, knowing and worshiping and calling good and beautiful. Amen. All right, we are coming out of Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 34. Um, we're going to read the whole thing. 28 through 34 is a couple of verses. I think it's like at least 10, less than 10. I can't count. Anyway, so Luke 9, verse 28 through 34, and it will be on the screen. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at the time what they had seen. All right, so there's so much kind of going on in the scene. We kind of like plop right down into this situation. Um, so let's get situated in context. Previously in the chapter, Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say I am? You know, it's a time where... Um, he got them away from the crowd, and he's differentiating who the crowd says, who the religious leaders say, and he asked them, who do you say I am? Those of you who have been with me, traveling with me, committed to me, what do you say that I am? The, the crowds have an opinion. Your mama's got an opinion. Everybody else has an opinion. But you that have been with me, who's seen what you have seen, who am I? And Peter gets it right. He speaks up and says, you are the Messiah. In Matthew's account, Jesus commands, I mean, commends them in saying, you know, you got this right, but it's because the Father has revealed this to you. Jesus then goes on to tell them the type of Messiah he would be. They, for so long, had been expecting a warrior king, um, someone who would overthrow the Roman government and usher in a religious and social economic peace that would basically put them back on top, and they would, that Messiah would rule as God's judge on the earth. They were wanting someone valiant, someone strong, someone big, someone brave. They had been told their whole lives, that's your Messiah. But turns out, the warrior that they would get was the one who would die on a cross. He would suffer, he would be rejected, and the only way he was ascending to a throne was after death on a cross. So he busted up all their expectations of what his mission would look like. So it's in this paradigm shift that the transfiguration happens. After the truth is declared and assumptions are busted, Jesus is further revealed in his glory, and that's beautiful. The revealed Jesus is beautiful. Even if it's not your expectation of what you thought he would be. 
He will always be better, always be fuller, always be more complete. But how do we get to this concept of beauty? You know, we have this scene where Jesus was on a mountain glowing. (laughs) But how do we get to call that beautiful? How do we get to call his revelation beautiful? Let's look at the text. Verse 29 through 30. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. Hop down to verse 32. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. In verse 29, describing the change for Jesus is actually the Greek word leukos. It legitimately means bright, light, brilliant, especially bright, from whiteness, dazzling, white. Like, that's the definition. Like, you look up the word, it's like, bright. Very plain, very upfront. It is a translation not trying to mean anything deeper. It is exactly what it is. It's a bright light. Jesus was glowing. (laughs) He was bright and on the light, glowing from his face. But in verse 32, where it says, Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, what does the text say that they saw? It says glory. The word there for glory in the Greek is translated as splendor or brightness. So then we can say when they saw his leukos, they saw his doxa, his splendor, his brightness. When they saw his brightness, they saw his glory. When they saw his brilliance, they saw his splendor. So glory, the glory of God, Jesus revealing himself is wonderful. And so they're Hebrews. You have to understand that these Hebrew boys would know that there was a confluence and emerging of concepts when glory showed up because of how it showed up in the Old Testament. For them, they would know from the Psalms and the prophets that when they would behold God's majesty, splendor, and brilliance, and goodness, it came alongside with glory. They weren't all these separate concepts. And that's not all they would have known. They would have had this experience being on a mountain with Jesus and him glowing in his glory and the cloud and then these witnesses coming and the voice proclaiming. They would have had pulled in these stories from their heritage, from their lineage because they were good Hebrew boys. They would have recalled Moses being on yet another mountain receiving the law. And there being enveloped by a cloud and his face glowing with the glory of God so much that people couldn't look at it. They would have recalled God leading the children of Israel by cloud and by day and night, representing God's presence with his people. And that same cloud literally fighting on their behalf, pushing back the Egyptians so they could cross the Red Sea. They would have recalled all in this moment the glory of God falling as a cloud in the tabernacle, signifying God was with his people unlike every other God that was in the nation surrounding them. Their gods were too far and wanted too much. They would have connected that them standing on this mountain before this brilliant glowing Jesus enveloped by a cloud next to Moses and Elijah meant that they were in the presence of almighty God. Seeing Jesus was seeing the glory of God, or as the Bible project puts it, 
And Jesus is the incarnation of divine glory. It's God with us. And what happens to the Hebrew boys? They were utterly captivated. So point one, the revealed Jesus should captivate us. What's interesting to me is if you didn't know that your brain as a human, well, one, you have a brain, congratulations. Um, But your brain doesn't actually process information by thinking first. The first thing your, your body gets information by is by sensing. You sense information as intake. Then it goes to a nervous system. That information goes to your brain, one part of your brain. And then that part of your brain sends it to another part of your brain to make a decision based upon the information it got. So as in the words of Dr. Kurt Thompson, first we sense and then we make sense of what we sense. So in the, in the West, we are, you know, Western culture after the enlightenment, we're all like thinking is everything, rational, I think, therefore I am. When in reality, your body is like you sense and then you think. So when the disciples heard that Jesus was the Messiah and had even had a conversation about it, but now they saw his glory and they heard the voice of God and felt the glory cloud enveloping them. And when they were enveloped, they knew he was the Messiah. Gazing on his brilliance, this experience solidified him. The more that they experienced him, the more they felt him and heard him and saw him. The more they sensed him, the more they knew him. The more they made sense of him and the more they could be captivated by him. Ultimately, that is what beauty does. It captures our hearts and brings us outside of ourselves. It transcends us to a greater reality. So again, are you captivated by God? Is he beautiful to you? If that seems like a kind of up here question, we'll bring it down. Is he more than a religious system for you? Is he more than a good luck charm, someone you call on and rub on when things are tough? You know what? I'm not even mad. I'm not even mad at that. It's not sufficient, but God is kind enough that sometimes when you're in that place, he comes through just to tell you, like, it's, it's about me. Like, you're on some other stuff right now, but I'm going to answer this for you so you know it's about me. But have you moved from this religious system, this good luck charm, Do you call on him more than just when you need him? Has he moved from a tool to use to the lover of your soul? Do you cry out like the psalmist in Psalm 27? One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Is he your one desire? Is he, as I say in my personal prayer time, the bottom of my bottom of my bottom? After all the other stuff that that was too light to actually sink down to my foundation, is he the bottom? Is he your foundation? Is he your ultimate desire? If your answer is, I don't don't know, I, I honestly don't know. And I don't think I know this God. I don't think I've seen him in the way you're talking about. I don't think he evokes love and commitment and joy in me. That's okay. Glad you're here. 
Hopefully the person who invited you can tell you more about who he is. If not, our leadership would love to introduce you to this brilliant, beautiful God. But if your answer is yes, but your love tank is on E. Your beauty and captivation tank is a little low. That's okay. It's okay. We've been there. We love him. We know him. He's near. But life is hard, and I haven't seen him in a while as beautiful. We're going to go for a little bit for the rest of our time to talk about how we can be captivated by this beauty. So that we've seen the beauty of God. Well, on the mountain, we saw that God's beauty is revealed through Jesus. And that we've seen beauty is found where God reveals himself. So the next question has to be, well, where does God reveal himself? So if that's where we're going to get captivated, we have to go where God is revealing himself, yeah? So the first thing that we are told in theological worlds is that there is a first and second revelation. The first revelation that God gives is actually nature. The created world is known as God's general revelation. I'm talking about outside. From this point on, I'm talking about outside, okay? So I come from a time and place where we could we play outside as a kid. Like that was the, the, the tantamount thing you would do. You go home from school, you do your homework. If you were a child like me, you would lie about doing your homework and then go outside and play. You know, you'd get on your bike. There were skateboards and rollerblades and dangerous things that you were doing that you shouldn't did. There was one time I actually thought it was a good idea to tie a rope from the back of my bike to the skateboard on the floor, put my youngest sister, who was like 50 pounds at the time on the skateboard, go down a hill and hit a curve. And I thought, she's just gonna like skate, like real nice. Didn't know anything about physics. She, I just look back and see someone screaming like, ah, the whole time. But that was the point. It was like, we're going outside, we're kids of dirt. Kids of dirt, kids of sweat. And you would go out and you would sweat and then you'd come inside and what would your mama say? Mm -mm, you smell like outside. You smell like outside, please go wash yourself because you cannot come to my dinner table smelling and looking like that. Outside. But that's the extent of my outside experience. Sports, games, skateboards. Some of y'all are professionals and have things like gear, and y'all go camping, and uh, rock climbing, and trail running. I'm happy for you. I praise God for you. It's not, it's not my story. <laughs> I have a little uh, love-hate relationship with outside. It gets too dark, I start singing spirituals. I get a little nervous. I don't want to be out there. But uh, since we're already here talking about it, and I, I knew this was real because at our prayer retreat, which was at a camp, it's a camp, you know, it's outside camp. We are where? Outside. We get a text that morning that the goats are out. No context. Okay. <laughs> the goats are out. And I said, cool, that's fantastic. I feel safe. Um, no. So we... <laughs> We go on this walk. So it was like being with the Lord, like, wow, look at God and his general revelation. It's so beautiful. And then this goat just comes like popping up. And I, um, I was terrified. I was terrified. This is not my experience. I don't have any farm time. I belong in a city. I sat there, even though we're all separate, there's no one near me. And I said, help, a goat. I Help, a goat. And no one came to my rescue. And I said, this is not my church. This is not my church. They don't love me. They let me be attacked by a goat by myself. Anyway, but Romans 1 and Psalms 19 tell us that God reveals himself 
in the outside. Romans 1, 19 through 21 reads, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. Psalms 119, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Outside reveals to us a good God. When you look about the creation in the sky, whether it's the beach or the mountains, something should grip you with awe, its vastness, its interconnectedness, its detail and beauty, the biodiversity in one garden should blow your mind when you just get down to it. The one thing I've loved about learning science, and I'm not even like a person who really knows that much, but the more you knew about how DNA and plants, the one thing we learned, what is it? The mitochondria is what? Fantastic, you all went to school, I'm proud of you, right. But the more you learn that there's one part of one cell and those cells together make up one part of one organism and that organism reproduces itself to make a plant and that plant is only one of billions. And you see the detail, you're like, oh my gosh, God is brilliant. God is amazing. Or being on this beach and you're like, You can touch the sand, which is like terrible because like glitter, it gets everywhere. And I don't even know trillions, I don't don't know what's bigger than trillions, someone tell me later, trillions upon trillions of grains. And they stop, the water stops right where it's supposed to stop and it goes beyond, as you can see, knowing there are depths of the ocean humans have not touched yet. God is brilliant. Scripture says that deep in man's knowledge, we know something made this. Someone made this, and whoever they are, they're good. See up in the stars, the constellations, just like the reality that we are one planet and one solar system, and this solar system is one of billions. We can't even see far. The fact that the light we get from the daytime was shined hours ago, times ago, blows our mind to say this must have been made. This must have been ordered. This must have been specifically done, and whoever did it is brilliant. And for the Christian, we can actually take the next step in that besides just recognizing God, but we can worship. We can worship and say, wow, because we know him. We know the one who made it. We know the brilliant one. We know this one who used beauty to captivate us and make himself known in the earth, and we can respond and worship. Right now, we kind of live in a time where I love the fact that, you know, mental health is like a very big conversation in our our nation. I, you know, for it all the time. But sometimes we reduce going outside to just like a mindfulness practice. Like that's all it needs to be. Like feeling sad, get your vitamin D, go outside, um, do that. But Romans alludes that the proper response to engaging with God's revelation is actually worship to see him in all things and respond in worship. We are to behold glory. So what can that look like? How do we behold glory responding to the revelation of God's goodness? Number one is really simple. Go outside. Go outside. Go to the outside that you have not been before or the one you have 
done. I don't know where that's going. Anyway, but go outside and take your practices outside with you. These practices don't save you, but they do keep you close to the Father. Simple things like a prayer walk. Take your prayer time on a walk outside. Go be with God in what he has made so you can get lost in wonder and beauty. And this could be five minutes. I don't know your time constraints. I don't know your life limits. This could be your lunch break. This could be five minutes between diaper changes and uh, naps. It can be whatever it needs to be, but go outside. Be with him. Nestle yourself in the Psalms. The Psalms are so beautiful. They're actually songs and poetry artistically written to show us what God has revealed in nature. Grab one, take it outside. Get lost in the wonder and beauty. Nerd out a little bit. For me, that has looked like, and not all the time, but I remember picking up this leaf on my like walk time on a lunch break and at the back of it, on the back of a leaf, I don't know what it's called, but the little branches that come from like the middle part someone's not with me, they got me the branch. And they're like, they were so specific. They just, they looked like the branches on my hand. And I said, wow, I don't even know what these are called right now, but that's okay. But like the fingerprints, like they were so specific. And I knew that was a part of how water was distributed, how life went through the whole plant. And it just get really specific. Just look at it and get lost. It's okay. Share with someone so you can sound as crazy as I do right now, but that's okay. Look at it and get lost. Wow. This is beautiful. This is amazing. This is interconnected. This is intentional. And then in all of the getting lost in wonder and beauty, praise him as you are captivated. Praise him as he meets you there. Um, it can also uh, look like, you know, not even like your pretty prayer time. Like take your ugly prayer time outside. I, like if you save, you got ugly prayer time, Okay. You do. You just, <laughs> just that. Take that <laughs> outside. Because um, God meets us. Like if we believe that his spirit is with us, he goes before us. He meets us where we go to meet with him. Yeah? We might even believe that he prepares a place for us to go meet him there. A prepared place for me one time was at Tanglewood Park. I uh, struggled with anxiety. Um, and I was having a terrible time. I don't know what point in life. Just everything was on fire. It felt like the whole world was on fire. And so I went up to Winston-Salem, Tanglewood Park, and the park is beautiful. Like, it's hard to be stressed and angry in nature. <laughs> it's because then you get lost. You feel small. You feel like, oh, it's really not all about me. It's not all about me. Oh, there's, there's someone else in control. Um, so in my ugly prayer time in public at this park, um, God was like, go look at those ducks. I said, look at the ducks. <laughs> he said, sit down and look at the ducks. And so for 20 minutes, I sat there and cried and watched these ducks just go back and forth on the water. Um, and I just felt like God was leaning into me and said, their feet, if you know ducks' feet underwater, they're freaking out, right? Like under the water, they're just like, dun, 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 like the whole time. But he reminded me, he was like the sparrow. Remember the sparrow? Remember how none of my creation actually works for what they need? You're so anxious for your provision. They are literally just living the life I've given them to live. And I'm providing every step of the way. He made Matthew 11, Matthew 6 and 7, come alive to me by watching some ducks. He was like, chill out. You feel like under the water, but they are not worried about where their next meal is coming from. They're not worried about functioning correctly and what's happening in 20 years. They're just being who I've created them to be. 
that also has turned into a very bad tattoo. I can tell you about that later. Um, <laughs> you know, as Christians, like, oh my God, I had experience with the Lord. Let's put a tattoo on our body. <laughs> Please go to a certified tattoo artist. <laughs> Oh, God. But like the disciples, these moments, we are captivated by his splendor, his majesty, and his glory. It's these places where we feel, see, touch, and experience his beauty. We sense his presence. How else can we be captivated by God? I want to pose to you that the way we can be captivated by God is recognizing goodness. Within the transfiguration response, we see the phrase, it was glorious to see, and it was good for us to be here. Peter was able to call the revelation of Christ's brilliance good. That's a descriptor. That's a type of something. Good is describing the glory of God. Now, Greek philosophers have pulled concepts of truth, beauty, and goodness and coined them as the three transcendentals. Um, Many go on about how they all work together and if they hold the same amount of weight. Church fathers have even responded to the Greek philosophers and thinkers and gone on to write, you know, very deep contextualized studies and tried to bring them into the Christian faith. Um, Halfway through me studying them um, for this talk, I realized I really had no idea what they were talking about, and it was very dense, and I realized I was not going to solve this problem or bring anything new to this conversation that has been going on for thousands of years, but something I did notice through this conversation about beauty, truth, and goodness, and how they all interplay is that when Peter, James, and John, or PJJ, were on the mountain, we talked about how they would have known their history and had this, like, confluence of brilliance and beauty and majesty and splendor because of how God's glory showed up in the Old Testament. They would have known those stories. They would have seen all of those things happening. One of those encounters where God shows up is in Exodus 33. And Moses asks two questions in Exodus 33. God, show me your ways and show me your glory. God's response to that question was a promise of his presence. And then he shows Moses his back. He literally shows up to Moses. Verse 19 reads, I will cause all my goodness to pass in, pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, Yahweh. In your presence, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Before God revealed more of himself to Moses, more of his glory, he told him what he was like. He told him his character that he was merciful and compassionate. And then he called his goodness his glory. So God's character is ultimately good because God is good. So for the believer, for something to be beautiful, it must be God's definition of good. Some try to extrapolate beauty apart from God's goodness and try to chase aesthetics over the revealed God. But it is not good if it is not godly, which means it is not beautiful if it is not good. Dallas Willard defines beauty as goodness made manifest to the senses. Uh, Mako Fujimura in his book, um, Culture Care, wrote, experience shows that a lack of either truth or goodness, whether in quality of workmanship 
or in the moral sense, detracts from the beauty in the given artifact. Meaning if you miss goodness, you miss beauty. If we get the definition of what God is good, well, here we go. If we get the definition of goodness from God, then that means we get all of the definitions from God's word. We have to let the word guide us into recognizing goodness because if we see goodness, then we can be pointed back to beauty and captivation into God's glory. And I would be remiss um, if I didn't take this moment to address artists and creatives, okay? Um, Art and prayer is kind of my realm, but I am a creative person. My whole life is art. Um, But art, like everything else, was affected by the fall, affected by the Enlightenment, affected by the Industrial Revolution, you know? Um, Detached from the church, so at the point, Enlightenment, detached from the church, and goodness, a definition of goodness, it was made... It was reduced or had a reductionist ideology behind it and became commodity-based. If you are creative in this this room, you know that it's like, I got to make art. This art better sell because I got to pay my bills. It's about commodity-based, yeah? And then its values followed suit to where creativity is not driven to make, if it's not driven to make you money, then it must prophesy without God to the world. Like, Like, fine. Like, if I can't do this to make money or, like, think it's just about, something being beautiful or good, then I have to do this RF for shock value. Like I have to create as a voice to the world to tell them, hey, look at this. This is an image of you. I'm trying to image this back to the world. But they do that without God. They move prophetically. They picture something that is not yet or how they wish it to be without God. And follow suit. Then, you know, you show only our shock value, we then, without God, we show only our dehumanization. We just reveal sadness and brokenness. And it's not done as like a juxtaposition to what's beautiful. It's just like, that's art. This very sad thing that you're staring at is art. Accept it. (laughs) Fujimura goes on to say, the implicit and explicit cultural pressures towards ideological uniformity are so high that one could say that in the culture wars, artists are free to express anything other than beauty. Which is crazy because beauty, if good, points us to the one who is the most beautiful. But beauty, if you can call it that, apart from goodness, only points us to brokenness without hope. All of us have a cultural mandate that is a a call, if you would, to create and cultivate in this world. Like whatever your job may be, you're an engineer, stay-at-home mom, teacher, you're called to create and cultivate in this world. But for those of you whose job is literally to captivate, like you're a creative, like you're an artist, then let it be good. Let it be good. So it can be truly beautiful and recognized as good. So that's our premise. If beauty helps us recognize God and captivates us, but beauty's prerequisite to being beautiful is goodness, then we have to get good at recognizing goodness. So where do we see the attributes of goodness? Philippians 4.8 is where I want to land. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think on these things. 
To be captivated by beauty, we must recognize, ruminate, and return to what is good. All right, so I'm turning the corner. I'm coming home now. I know you guys, I don't know, can't really smell the chili from up here, but you can smell the chili. Um, so recognizing, recognizing goodness. Moment by moment, we must learn to recognize the noble, the right, the pure, the loving, and God's good gifts to us. By ruminating, we then turn them over in our mind. We marinate them. They stay, they flip, they rotate. They run backwards and forwards and around. And then in turn, we return praise to God. So what does that look like? Pausing and waiting to make the choice to encounter God in that moment. Parents, this means staring into your child's face as they hold up yet another nondescript picture with joy (laughs) towards you knowing that this is lovely. This is lovely. And we ruminate and say, wow, God did this. And then we return to him praise. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Or young folks being with an aging parent or grandparent and hearing them retell stories, passing on wisdom. Hopefully it's good wisdom. Like, wow, this moment, to pause and say, this moment is good. Let it ruminate, run forwards and backwards. Wow, God has given me this moment. God is gracious. And return to him, Lord, you're worthy. Or recognizing a moment like sitting at a table with loved ones where there is laughter and joy. Like I hope we we can do in the next couple minutes. And to know that this moment is beautiful. And to ruminate on this and say, wow, wow, God gave me this moment. This is good. And return to him praise saying, thank you, Lord. These are opportunities to practice recognizing the beauty of God. Moments to be captivated in your senses, seeing him moving and working in the world more clearly. He's revealed them to us. And it's us sensing him in the brilliance of him pulling us out of our reality into his. Most of us live into a story, but most of the time we don't realize our story, our things are just in the cultural waters of the day. We get lost in the mundane. We can't recognize what's good, what's right, what's true. What is God saying? What is the world trying to influence me into? Even in the small moment, but to take the moment to repause and go back into God's story, to recognize him, to see him, to sense him, to taste him, to touch him, to feel him. It's how we are formed. Beauty is used to form us and beauty is a juxtaposition of what is not beautiful. If you have something good and beautiful sitting next to something that is not good and beautiful, it gets very clear if we use God's definition of beauty. Dr. Elaine Scary wrote, beauty sooner or later brings us into our own capacity for making errors. Meaning the beautiful next to the unbeautiful is clear to see. So for those of you who have yet to be captivated by Christ, yet to be evidenced by your surrender to him in your everything, seeing him as beautiful and brilliant, then your errors should be clear. But there's always an open invitation that says, follow me. Follow me. You against me, the perfect against the imperfect, should expose 
what is not correct. But there's an invitation from beauty that says, follow me so I can remake you into what is beautiful. Christian, before a brilliant Christ, we can easily see the areas in our life that need to be surrendered to him. That's beauty against what is not beautiful. And we can always respond, you are good. I am not. Here I am again. And in all our surrender to the truly beautiful one, like 1 John 3, 2 says, what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. And that reality is brilliant. We'll be transformed into brilliance. We will share in a glory that is only the glory given by God because we surrendered our life to the most beautiful one. That is the invitation. I'm done. That's the invitation of beauty. To recognize what is good and surrender to it. To recognize what is not beautiful and leave it. To return to goodness and goodness is a person. And that's Jesus. There is no hope in this life other than Christ. But the promise he gives us is a change into being renewed from what we once were, lost, hurt, and in some passages, an enemy into a friend, from ugly to beautiful, and it's free. Free. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are um, you're kind. We thank you that you are brilliant and good. We know that you are the only one who can satisfy us. God, this week, would you ruminate in our minds that question, is God beautiful to me? Is he worthy of all of my everything at all times? God, I pray that response would be yes, and yes again, and yes again, for those of us struggling, for those of us in a dark place, would it be yes again? For those of us unwilling to let go of the sin in our life, God, would it be yes again? For those of us unwilling to let go of the things that hold us back, our distractions, our vices, God, would it be yes again? For those of us who have not quite said you're enough because we're scared of what we might lose, would we see you as good and worthy of our everything? God, would surrender be the response to beauty? Would our hearts be captivated for years to come and recaptivated? God, would you breathe fresh life into those who are weary? Would you make yourself shine to them in some way? Would they sense you, know you, feel you, taste you, touch you? Would they taste and see that the Lord is good? Would they long to dwell at your temple and stare at your beauty? God, we need you. Change us. Change us, God. Amen.